0: Welcome to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life. Andrew Cashin. I'm the Professor of Autism and Intellectual Disability in the Faculty of Health at Southern Cross University. I'm based at Lismore Campus on the north coast of New South Wales. Uh, I'm the co-project lead for the Every Nurses Business project, which is um, Intellectual Disability and Autism, Every Nurses Business. It's funded by the uh, NDIS as part of the Information and Linkage and Capacity Building Program, uh, with the aim of the project being to build the capacity of registered nurses in Australia um, to uh, look after, to work with people with intellectual disability and autism in mainstream health services.
1: That, Andrew um I spent a bit of time over the last couple of days looking through the learning platform and it was um it was really interesting to me and it was and it brought back uh, a lot of things that I've thought over the years about just how little we get prepared as undergraduates especially me because I was trained in the early 80s um in regard to how we deliver care for people with intellectual disabilities and 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 certainly people with ASD, so or ADS, sorry.
0: Yeah, and that's an interesting point. And part of the project, we um, of course looked at the literature, and that showed that um, the work that had been done in Australia had raised the suspicion that preparation had been patchy at best. Um, all the publications, uh, including some work I'd been on previously, we'd always thought that there'd been a, a decline in content that undergraduates were exposed to over the years. I, I trained uh, uh, or, or did my uh, initial nursing uh, course uh, sort of began in 85, I think, so in the, the uh, mid-80s. And um, I certainly had a lot of content where I was and uh, was sort of thinking, well, maybe it's dropped off. But uh, part of the project after we did the literature review, we did a national survey and we found something uh, really surprising and actually uh, even uh, looking at international literature, it's surprising is that uh, the content has been sparse and patchy um, uh, right across. And, and that's not only since the move to tertiary education, it seemed that if you... Uh, did a a certificate in you know disability nursing of course you had a lot of content but if you did it in general or other forms of nursing even pre the move to tertiary that there was very little content so uh, it doesn't even seem like uh, the exposure to undergraduates um, about content related to autism and intellectual disability um, has declined it looks like it's just not been there it's a, a gap and you know that may explain some of the health outcomes that these guys are experiencing. And of course, nurses aren't the only ones uh, involved in their treatment, but as we know, um, given this is a podcast for nurses and emergency nurses, we know that nurses are probably the most important people involved in their treatment. but the health outcomes for people with intellectual disability and autism, in, you know, not only um, in terms of uh, morbidity, but also in terms of mortality, are just stark. And uh, we're, we're very aware of uh, outcomes of other groups like Indigenous Australians. But the case is starting to emerge that uh, actually the outcomes are worse for people with intellectual disability and autism than potentially any other group in Australia. Um, certainly at the very best, they'd be comparable to the are the worst groups. Um, and so These things are starting to add up, and that makes sense. If we can work together uh, to really think about this, uh, we might be able to make a huge difference. And that's why some of our promotion animations have a lawnmower mowing long grass. I had this picture in my head. It's a bit like, um, and I've always said this: uh, the reason I like working with people with autism is a bit like mowing long grass. You can see where you've been. Uh, You're not just, you know, tidying up something that looked pretty good to start with. Is that you can make huge impacts into people's quality of life and their health outcomes, and uh, so yeah, hopefully we can all work together and, and make a difference. So, so that was very much, uh, you, you've pretty much
1: explained what I had as a scripted question and we just launched straight in, didn't really talk about what the platform is. But um, what I wanted to do was ask you about um, how the site came about. And what you're saying to me is that it, it's about improving health outcomes and also um, about how we can support. Nurses to, to look after people with intellectual disabilities or autism.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's exactly it, yeah, and I sort of get a bit passionate about this stuff, so I launch <laughs> right in. But actually, um, the information linkage and capacity building program was part of the um, constitution when the NDIS was formatted, so uh, it was always budgeted that these projects happen, and um, we just saw that there was a, a capacity building um grant round and so we applied on the base of uh, building capacity for nurses just in the context of those outcomes we were talking about and so um, we started to have some conversations and we formed up a a coalition and on the team we've got uh cena anmf Uh, we've got panda which is of course you know the professional association of nurses in disability in australia Uh, we've got the crit care nurses um And uh, we've got APNA, the primary care nurses. And so we formed a coalition thinking about uh, well, let's pull together uh, and um, through the platforms of the colleges, uh, you know, really see if we can. Uh, build some capacity across all of mainstream healthcare. So that covers, you know, general nursing, um, that covers potentially uh, other areas like mental health nursing, even though uh, the mental health college isn't uh, involved uh, as a partner, but certainly ANMF is. Uh, covers the emergency department, which is really important. It covers uh, all our critical care uh, and importantly covers primary care. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about why uh, <laughs> it's important to go across those spans, but yeah, so that's how it came about. We had those conversations. We put in the grant. Uh, we were awarded, um, you know, a good amount of money, which should allow us to pull together and see if we can first determine, uh, you know, what are the gaps, and that's where I started raving on about the survey. Uh, so we did a national survey to look at the literature, uh, then pull together some learning, uh, and then see if we can all get engaged in in doing it. and um, then there's uh, some bonuses uh, which we can talk about as we go along and I'll throw in the word free several times because that's <laughs> kind of important but the other thing is and um, we started to play with the idea of micro-credentialing and so so this isn't just a, a one-off hit we thought if we did whip the whistle of some nurses and they want to take this further uh, that if they do the whole course and the uh, nominated assessment at the end we can package it up equivalent to a unit of study in a postgraduate program and
1: oh wow um, I didn't I didn't I wasn't aware of that um perhaps we before we get right into what you, what nurses um, and anybody really can get out of the learning site, perhaps you could tell us what the learning site is.
0: Yeah, so the learning site um, goes. Actually, um, even taking a step back from the learning site, with the. Yeah. Um, uh, the program that we sort of put in place for this grant. Um, some of the listeners might have noticed that we, we bombarded your Facebook a little bit and um, some other communicates through the college. We started with what we um, came up with, which was white labeling. And it's really useful that the um, uh, CEO of APNA, Ken, is actually a, an advertising guy. And uh, he introduced a concept we thought, wow, this is you know, uh, you know, so uh, different, which is white labelling, that the first part of the program is was we designed learning materials so that the partner associations could badge it themselves and put it out to members. So hopefully some of the SENA members might have seen some stuff coming from CENA talking about intellectual disability and autism. And that was the very first awareness raising and a bit of foundational stuff, just really basic stuff to, you know, let people know about these health outcomes and the fact that if you make reasonable adjustments to your practice, adjustments that can make a big difference and there's some basic areas you know around communication and and other areas that was the first step the next step we developed a standalone learning site now it's piggybacked off the back of the panda uh, website but it's a, a standalone Moodle run platform uh, running off a, a separate server so it's fully confidential and, and safe to use. Uh, and on that we have two levels of learning building on that foundational stuff, the intermediate and the advanced. Um, tell me if I'm waffling on a bit. No, I'm no, just... no, 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 no. Yeah, so the, um, because people were, would have engaged in some of this thinking, hopefully at the foundational level, uh, so that's not a waste of time. There's a quiz you can do as soon as you come to the learning site. And uh, if you pass the quiz, of course you've got to pass, you get a couple of goes, um, then you can claim some CPD. Uh, and again, it's, it's free CPD. And on the learning site, we've got all those foundational sort of uh, materials packaged up. So if you did miss it and you want to have a look and do that CPD, you can do that. Once you do that foundational level, um, of course, you can go to the intermediate level and that's where we really looked at uh, the literature and we looked at some information. We got back off that survey and worked out uh, some modules of learning uh, and which take you through, uh, you know, the so what, why is this important? So we called that the imperatives of care, which talks about. Uh, you know, the international and national conventions that we've signed up to, which is about inclusiveness and, uh, you know, the fact that things like reasonable adjustments are actually enshrined in law as well as policy. And just to start off, reasonable adjustments really are just small adjustments you make. And reasonable is just something that's not prohibitive in terms of cost and human resource to do. So they're not huge things, they're small changes that can make a a world of difference. We talk about communication and we've broken it down into communication to and from so that um, we can think about uh, how we communicate to people with intellectual disability in this. autism as nurses, but also how we can interpret the communication coming back because, uh, you know, it's kind of common sense. If anyone in a uh, communication exchange has some sort of communication challenge or impairment, then the whole communication is challenged. And so thinking about, well, how we adjust practice, how we communicate, we look at how we support positive behaviour, and we can talk a little bit more about that because that, that's something I'm, I'm really interested in and fascinating, but we've got a module on that. And um we also give some foundational information about the NDIS. We found that, uh, as a group, um, uh, for a lot of nurses who were engaged in working in public health services, for instance, the NDIS has happened uh, around them without, you know, sort of um, involving them too much. So we give a bit of information about what the NDIS is, what are the premises, but also take it up into what role nurses could take uh, if nurses did want to work under the NDIS. Uh, what is available to them to be funded, but also uh, what in Australia um blatant sort of way isn't available for nurses to engage in uh, and, you know, what other, um, you know, once we're aware of that, how we might work to build the capacity to demonstrate that to the NDIS so that nurses could be funded to do things uh, based on their nursing qualifications like therapeutic supports, you know, counselling behaviour support and things. I'm
1: sorry, Andrew. I thought it was really interesting actually that there was some learning around how NDIS works. And, and and you hit on a little bit of it there, you were saying how um, it just happened around us, and it did. And one of the things that I've always sort of tried to practice and tried to emulate and tried to teach, stu- uh, you know, y- y- novice people in the emergency department is... Uh, about looking at things from the point of view of the patient coming in and trying to navigate a healthcare service. And if you don't have a reasonable understanding of what they're up against and what they're dealing with and what the ins and outs are, um, and flow on from that is if you don't have some sort of idea about what challenges and what happens with NDIS for, from the patient um, view or the person view, it, 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 you don't really, you can't really empathize with what they're up against, right?
0: Yeah, no, that's a, a really good point. Um, and then discharge planning is the other thing. Who, who's going to support these guys when they go out there? So, just sort of understanding the NDIS and what its possibilities are in terms of utilizing existing supports. But also how, how you could support someone to build other supports around themselves so that they, you know, don't keep popping back to the emergency department um, because they're going out and they're unsupported and, and the problem just becomes something of a, you know, chronic thing. The other thing, uh, interestingly, is, is why a support worker might show up and, and who are these people and are they paid? And um, there are actually policies in the different state and territory um, health systems about how these guys can enter Systems and how uh, you know uh, health professionals employed in those systems interact with them. So that's another interesting side. Uh, and also um, where you could get information, uh, you know, as nurses, and I, I haven't worked in a, a general hospital for a while, but, um, you know, it was always traditional if you wanted information about someone, you, you know, you had their GP, you had the community health services, things that were really part of the system. Uh, yet here's a system which is running almost parallel uh, to the local health districts and uh, rich with information. And it allows you to sort of think about, well, who are these people that are in this system, you know, and uh, what are they doing? doing and how are they funded
1: Mm. and and that takes time and that's hard and and i think one of the things that uh, i'm only halfway into the intermediate part of the of the learning site um one of the things is you know you work four or five days a week you come home from a busy emergency department shift and you're knackered (laughs) and then you have to try and fit in time to work out some of the different processes and some of the different um, things that are around you. One of the interesting things with your, with your site was you said there was a, a part where it asked you to go off and check um, what your healthcare network's policy on a certain aspect of caring for people with um, intellectual disabilities was. And I had a look and certainly there was no reference to, to that. I, I, I can't remember exactly what it was referring to. Do you know what I'm talking about there?
0: Uh, i'm sort of nodding hoping that we could just glaze over it and i wouldn't get caught out <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm not, not really sure exactly it, what we're it, talking about
1: it, but it basically was around um well what does your policy say about this aspect of caring for people with with intellectual disabilities I think, um, or autism i think that.
0: it's exactly what we're talking about it's yeah. about how um support workers are actually integrated and how you you go about working with support workers um and thinking about those things like confidentiality. What's the difference between a support worker and, you know, uh, just somebody off the street and all of those things? Yeah. No,
1: it's really interesting. So what do you think it is um, about the um, learning site and the CPD program that's relevant to RNs who particularly who are working in the emergency department?
0: Yeah. Um, I think for the site's relevant to nurses in all those contexts because of the exact reasons you've mentioned is that um, whatever context someone comes into contact with someone with intellectual disability and autism, uh, the the challenges we talk about in the learning sites, the the knowings and understandings we're hoping to cultivate are going to be relevant because um, you know the context varies, uh, but nursing doesn't vary. And it's about, you know, that person-centeredness you were talking about. How do you actually, you know, take their perspective and uh, start where wherever they're at and work with them on that journey? I think that's common across all. But particularly in an emergency department, there's some extra challenges that make this perhaps even more pertinent in that um, by the very nature of coming into the emergency department, it's often unplanned. (laughs) It's often the basis of an emergency. So uh, some of the luxury of doing preparation with someone before they come just might not be there. And the other thing is that when they come, they may well have a fairly high load of anxiety. Uh, but because of the thinking and information processing styles that go with autism in particular, but also intellectual disability, um, they may not be able to express that in the way that a neurotypical thinker, someone without intellectual disability and autism, could express it. They may not even be aware of the fact that they've got all this pushy anxiety in the background, pushing them into a whole range of behaviours. And if you just react to the behaviour and react to what's in front of you, it can take you off on a tangent, and get you a long way from actually understanding that where the person is at and what they're doing uh, and what the function of that behaviour is, what they're trying to achieve. And it can take you down rabbit holes. Um, we talk a bit about diagnostic overshadowing, and that's really important in all contexts. But certainly in the emergency department, nurses are diagnosing from the time someone comes in the door in, in the form of you know trying to understand, well, what's happening with this person? How do we triage? What's the priority? Uh, and what do we do from here. And uh, it's very easy to see someone's disability or see the behaviour they're exhibiting uh, and then to miss actually some of the really important stuff, which is, uh, you know, comorbidities in terms of uh, mental health, physical health issues that are going on. And so we often see people who come in with a high degree of anxiety, who can't express what's going on, uh, who have fairly serious physical problems happening, uh, yet they're being treated as a behavioural issue. Um, And so the site hopefully starts to give people the capacity to see beyond that and to understand how to work with people and also to understand your assessment. I mean, in an ED, uh, it's very natural if someone's looking worried or whatever to say, are you feeling anxious? Well, that's actually predicated on neurotypical thinking is that you actually label Uh, emotions and feelings and that anxious means something to you, Um, whereas someone could be equally anxious uh, and worried, scared, uh, but not think about things in that way. Um, And so uh, to actually access that needs a whole different way of questioning and thinking. But once you get the hang of it, it's easy. It's just actually having that minute to step back and think oh this makes sense and it is like mowing long grass and that's where we get into the positive behavior support stuff as you know how to teach new routines and behaviors you need and you can do that on the run uh, as you potentially have to do in an emergency department uh, and save yourself hours as well as save the person heaps and heaps of uh, uncomfortable time.
2: bit earlier about the different levels that are available within the the learning site can you expand on them just a bit little bit further so for a complete novice like myself how would i navigate my way through all the different levels yeah no
0: thanks and uh, we're getting Excited and burrowing into some of the content in the immediate intermediate site. Um, when you come to the site at first, you you log on. You have to just you know just like logging onto any site, create your profile, and that also allows you to give us some demographic information so we can start to. Um, look at who's using it and, and where they're coming from and things. Uh, then you you come up with a menu. And if you go into the foundation one, you can do the quiz and, and actually download your personalised CPD certificate, uh, you know, stick it in with your, your documents. Uh, then go into the intermediate, and that's where we were talking about uh, the sort of content you might find there. And that's just a matter of going through the modules, and at the end, there's another CPD certificate. And this one's actually uh, even better. The first one gives you an hour CPD, this gives you four hours CPD. Um, And again, it's free. Um, And you can print and download your your certificate at the end of that and um, put it in your documents. And that allows you then uh, to go to the advanced level learning. And that starts off, and it's not modularized. it just has some content under headings, but we go a little bit more into um, things like supporting positive behaviour and a little bit uh, more depth of things. And at the end of of navigating that, and again, there's videos and quizzes and and different sort of ways to engage so it's not as dry as a biscuit, some of the videoing is all the videos that we're using are created for this project. So that was some filming done by Summerhill Media, uh, and they're with people uh, you know, parents have uh, people with intellectual disability and autism, and people themselves with lived experience. Uh, and so we've, we've created those. Uh, at the end of that, you can elect to do an assignment in the advanced one, and that's a um, just like you would do at a university there's some guidance around that there's a marking rubric and that'll come off at the end of that um go through turn it in as you would expect at a university and be marked by someone we employ here at the university at the end of uh as long as you pass, it's a uh, <laughs> yeah. pass fail thing. Uh, as long as you pass, then we'll micro credential the whole lot. So then we package it all up. And by the time you do the foundational, uh, the intermediate, and the advanced content and the assignment that goes with it, given you've done two uh, small, you know, first the foundation quiz is quite small, the intermediate's just a little bit bigger. I think it's got twice as many questions. Um, when you think about it, if you're familiar with universities, it's, it's looking like a level eight. Subject, and in fact, that's what we package it up. So then uh, we we give a micro credential, is that on completion of this, you know, you've done this amount of hours of study uh, and passed this exam, and this is equivalent to one unit of study at level eight. Now, the, we can't guarantee universities will take that, but of course, universities are businesses, and um, the listeners are consumers, and it's very rare that it, uh, if there's a uh, you know sort of a reputable group giving that sort of credential that it wouldn't be taken and you could foreseeably take that and trade it off against most um, graduate diplomas or master's courses in nursing that have an elective. And I imagine if you're doing a master's in med, uh, ED nursing uh, that you p- potentially could trade it off. Certainly you could take it and trade it off against doing um, you know, intellectual disability and autism studies. And uh, we did have it as a guaranteed um, credit here. Unfortunately in the fiscal constraints of universities, our near new graduate diploma in intellectual disability and autism has been frozen. and uh, hopefully, you know, sometime soon that'll unfreeze, but really that's that whole micro-credentialing thing. So from doing the whole program, you get five hours of CPD certificates. And if you go on and do the essay, package it up and it's micro-credentialed. And again, if you're making a case to ARPRA, we get very hung up on, uh, as nurses, on needing bits of paper for someone to really say you've done this. But really, uh, when you, if you were asked to account for your CPD, and it's not just about your certificate, it's about your reflections and your integration into practice, closing the loop. If you go and say, well, this is my micro-credentialed unit, I imagine that, you know, the NMBA would actually see this as, they would see doing a unit of study anyway. And so uh, there's quite a an incentive to, you know, go on and, and <clears throat> complete the whole pathway.
2: Yeah, a major incentive. Is there any synchronous learning within it or any um, like face-to-face sessions or anything like that 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 the students can can participate in? Yeah, no, and that's a good question. Part of the advanced uh,
0: learning site is that we're actually setting up synchronous sessions, and they're going to be on a four-week block. And uh, to begin with, we're going to do context-specific. So, they'll begin mid-July, um, and in that first four weeks, there'll be a session specifically on the ED, uh, and then um, one on primary care, one on a more general context, and one on Crick care. But beyond that, um, we'll... we'll see see how people respond and we'll do a bit of evaluation. Uh, and then we'll have specific sessions like uh, comorbidities. Uh, you know, Julian Troller will join us. Uh, he's a psychiatrist who specializes in the area from UNSW and look at issues like diagnostic overshadowing, particularly in relation to uh, mental health and mental ill health. Um, and so we'll start to get different sessions going so that hopefully people won't just come to one and be done with it they might you know tune back in look at the program and, and come they won't be educational sessions there won't be so much synchronous learning as uh, learning processing so there may be some stimulus to you know a case study or something to get a discussion going but the main thing is to be able to talk about your context your practice things that have come up for you that you want to talk about uh, and to be facilitated. Uh, At the moment, uh, we're going to have one uh, facilitator right across and then guest facilitators come through. And these will be people that are a mixture of uh, people from the context, but also people with a background in intellectual disability and autism. So uh, it'll be a bit of a sense making thing. When we started Thinking about it, it was really like, how can we do something that's a bit like clinical supervision? But of course, uh, the constraints of you know, the platform and, and what we could achieve wouldn't allow us to make that sort of claim. But it is uh, similar to what you might be able to do in a tutorial, which is say, you know, I've seen this in practice. What have other people seen? Also, may allow people to um, have vicarious experience of uh, a high intensity but low frequency things. You know, um, you know, people who may not have seen. And I assume in the ED, most people have seen seizures and things. But uh, that's a good undergraduate example we give. Is on placement, you might not have seen that. But um, certainly, yeah. It, the whole range of things that you might not have seen in your practice, but you can hear other people talk about it. And so that when it does pop up,
2: uh, you've got somewhere to start in your thinking. But the sounds of it too, I think it goes back to what um, Cliff was saying about if you can't sort of empathise with what the patient's been through, yeah, it kind of can probably limit the quality of care that you provide. And I think if you attend those sessions on public in the public health setting and the critical care and then the ED specific, you kind of get an idea of the journey that the person's gone through just to get to the ED today. Um, what that I've heard you say a few times about the pos- positive behaviour support and the framework around it. Can you give us, um, and it's you, you're very passionate about the topic, which is really great and engaging to listen to. Are you able to give us an example of something that maybe our listeners could take away today that they could implement in their practice just to maybe try and improve i guess their the their contact with um, with these patients and improving their quality of care yeah, no, of course. And that positive
0: behaviour support and supporting positive behaviour, flicking the words around, positive behaviour support is actually a you know formalised approach to things. But you can take a step back and, and talk about supporting positive behaviour, which doesn't have the whole behaviourist overtones that go with positive behaviour support. But basically the assumption that comes with it is so common sense, uh, but saying it out loud, or well, when I heard it the first time, it was a bit like an aha moment, of, of course. And that's that <laughs> all behaviour has a function. And uh, that is just common sense. But then when you think about people with autism and intellectual disability, and on the site we, we put some papers there that you can access and things which talk about this in more depth. But the way they think uh, means that generalisation Uh, can become a real issue. And we often talk about people jokingly. You might have your latest group of um, beginning practitioners or colleagues and say they don't have a clue, but often they have a clue. It's just a long way from where they need to be. Whereas people with autism in particular, because of their abstraction deficit, can actually not have a clue. If they're placed in a visually different context, they may not know what to do, even though they've been in a waiting room before, they've been in a, um, a different form of emergency department, even if it looked visually different, it doesn't mean they're gonna generalize and bring those behaviors across. So if we think everyone has a clue, then our natural approach is if we offer the right incentives, either you know we take stuff away and we punish them, make them wait longer or whatever, uh, or we give them stuff um, You know, in terms of rewards that will coax the behavior that we want out of them. And eventually we'll hit the mark where uh, it's more efficient to please us to avoid the punishers, which hopefully we don't do, uh, or to get the rewards than it is to do whatever they're doing. And so uh, we actually get the behaviour we want. But people with intellectual disability and autism often don't have that behaviour to give us. It wouldn't matter how many rewards we gave them. And so positive behaviour support is really getting down to a three-step process, which is, forming a really good hypothesis is what the function of the behaviour is. And then the second step is teaching the behaviour you want uh, or the routine you want. And the third step, of course, is evaluating. And often we forget to come back and evaluate whether stuff's worked. And then if you evaluate it and it hasn't worked, making the decision, do you tweak it and go again? Or do you check it right out and start again and, and keep going until uh, the function has is, is been served? For nurses, you know, that isn't really different because we we all learnt the nursing process and uh, actually uh, I'm not sure that they still teach the nursing process but you know assess plan evaluate assess plan implement evaluate which is just a pure rip off of the scientific process you know if we were lab scientists and so none of this is is new it's just keeping in mind that if you want a behaviour and it's someone with intellectual disability and autism you're working with you probably explicitly need to teach them the behaviour you want Uh, and then um if you can involve the person as a co-conspirator, then uh, get their engagement in actually performing the behaviour. Often you can solve a lot of the problems you'll face because then they've got a clue what's going on. They know what they need to do to fit in and to navigate the system and uh, often they want to please, they want to navigate the system. It's just the how to do it's the question. So
1: Great, thank you. Oh my God, uh, we could go on forever about this, Andrew. I really think we do. Um, I was thinking while you were talking there um, about how um, this the you, the the learning platform can be used by so many people. And at the very start, we started talking. We we started off by talking about undergraduate preparation. Do you see a place for the learning platform for undergraduates?
0: Um. Not not so much at at this point, because our mission is to build the capacity Mm. of of registered nurses, but I think this learning does belong at an undergraduate level. Uh, In the last federal budget, uh, there was some signalling that this is a a thought. There's a few things been happening in the background. There's the Royal Commission, which is looking at abuse and neglect of people with disability. And uh, they've made... um, a point of raising the question is is should there be mandatory education for health professionals? Mm. And there was a a hearing around nurses and um, uh, both Nathan and I chatted with the uh, legal team as they are preparing for that hearing. And there's certainly that question. And I think there's some merit to that question in that um, the health outcomes are so bad, the experiences are really bad, and the content in curricular is really low. And that and that's just not adding up. So there has to be something to raise that awareness. So that was in the background. And then uh, there's a parliamentary roundtable. And I mentioned Julian Troller uh, from UNSW, and and he's um, very influential in actually advocating for the needs of these guys and doing a great job. And Jim Richardson from New South Wales, Centre for Intellectual Disability, um, together uh, really have uh, formed up a parliamentary roundtable with the Health Minister. And he's written to the the Health Minister's written to the Council of Deans of Nursing and Midwifery and also the Council of Deans of Medicine and asked, you know, for a solution to this deficit. The third thing that happened was in the federal budget uh, there was something like $4 million put aside to scope out forming modules which can be dropped into uh, all health programs and again in the background of some mandatory learning. So this learning content, not necessarily our our platform, does belong at an undergraduate level. Um, What form that takes and how how it gets there uh, will be a, a different different thing. The other thing is we are pitched the learning at level eight, so we've, we've not gone for the undergraduate. We've gone for people who have already done a degree um, or equivalent to a degree. And so probably a lot of the videos and things will find a, a life post project somewhere uh, and certainly could find it uh, a life in an undergraduate curricula. It's just the work around it, maybe at a different level. Of course.
1: Um... The the only other thing that keeps coming to my mind is your evaluation of this in the long term. I keep thinking like a boring old researcher, um, and I keep thinking about um, you know the person's outcomes, how you can how you can look at those as it relates to to this work that you've done um, that you you've all done. Um, have you had any thoughts about this?
0: Um, we're certainly got uh, several uh, ethics uh, approvals to evaluate different aspects of it. Uh, in terms of health outcomes, um, I guess That's you know, that would tricky, be the, right? the golden <laughs> chalice, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, it'd be a bit, a bit of a long blow, a bow to sort of move from what we're doing to claiming impact. Uh, we will do another national survey, which will pick up actually uh, across a couple of years what differences all these things, like those changes we're making at the... Talking about at the federal level and the other influences uh, are making in terms um, of uh, people's sense of confidence and preparation. Not necessarily the undergraduate learning that won't change that quickly. Um, in terms of evaluating the site, and you put, you talked about being a boring researcher. We've had to retreat to boring researcher style. Uh, you know, looking at using Salmon's model, which is you know the experience of using the site. Um, in terms of developing an online learning platform. Uh, and we'll get really good demographics about who's accessing. Um, but in terms of that longbow to direct influence on patient outcomes, we can just have faith that that's going to occur. But at this point, we, we can't measure that. No, of course you can't. Um,
1: so you better get cracking on that over the next couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, this has been really insightful. So we'll drop the um, the links. So just, just correct me if I'm wrong, the site is
0: live now for anybody to use? The site is live, yeah. It's up and running. Uh, we had a bit of a soft launch in June uh, and we just – well, I guess these are terms, and I certainly didn't make these terms up. I appropriated them from somewhere, but they were very convenient. Uh, the soft launch allowed us to um, open it up with just a little bit of publicizing it, and um, we've had about uh, less than a hundred people through. But we did get to iron out some chinks. <laughs> there, there were some issues, you know, just with the um, enrolling for the site and things like that. So they're all pretty well done now. Um, the content is nicely um, well coming up by the end of this week, it'll be fully finalised. And so we hit the hard launch in July, which is where we um, you know, sort of flood everyone's inboxes with all sorts of things. Uh, we've got a voiceover artist which is um, on uh, some animations um, to promote the site, which is kind of exciting because the minute you hear them, you realise actually how much work this one person's done. Um, And it made our stuff sound really professional because it makes you think of, hang on, isn't this the government person? Um, So we'll send some more promotion. But yeah, nurses can jump on on that link from now and uh, get going. Um, And certainly the synchronous learning will be starting, you know, in that July sort of mid to the end of July and the program will go up for that in the next week or so so people can you know get an idea of what's happening and when uh, that'll be another process of um, needing to bear with us a little bit as we can't really predict whether we're going to get one or a hundred or potentially even more given there's 300,000 odd registered nurses out there uh, and we're using like everyone, uh, loving or, or hating at the moment we're using Zoom to start with. And uh, so uh, hanging in there with us, but uh, I'm sure, you know, there will be opportunities and uh, we'll get better and better at facilitating it.
1: Yeah. So do you have to have um, registered a, a login on the site to access the synchronous learning sessions?
0: Yep. Yeah. Yep.
1: Great. Okay. So the links that I got sent from from you guys that's the exact same one and I can put that in our notes for
0: everybody show notes for everybody to yeah that'd be great and then once they jump onto that link they can register for the site and then yeah just go through the whole bit Um, the only real sort of um, blocks anywhere is you have to do the intermediate quiz and pass it before you get to the advanced Ah. Uh, so (laughs) if you want to get onto the uh, you know if you want to be first on the on the synchronous learning and uh, be ready to go Mid to the end of July. Then, if you can jump on sooner rather than later, then uh, you can do the quiz. But really, it shouldn't take any more than four hours. You can take a lot longer if you follow every link, uh, watch every movie. You, you can, you know, t- read the papers. You can take a bit of a convoluted journey and and take a long time, um, or you could, you know, do it in a compressed way and take your four hours and navigate through it.
1: I was just thinking with how um, young the site is that um, my results of my quizzes are going to stand out to the team.
2: (laughs) Andrew, I'm just been, feeling for the poor um, yeah. person that you've employed to mark all the assignments, like if you get even a quarter <laughs> of all the nurses, oh, <laughs> my God.
1: And I guess I was about to wrap up, but one of the things that I was thinking while you were talking about, you know, you've got somebody to mark the assignments, you're going to have um, synchronous uh, sessions. How is How do you predict the sustainability of this over time?
0: Uh, we, we we sort of um, funded it based on uh, a, an equation where we we looked at you know maximal we said something like hopefully two hundred or thousand odd nurses would have some exposure at the foundational level and you know no more than that would do the quiz uh, and then we pulled it right down and and really we were just doing our best predictions of of where it would go sustainability after it. So we're funded and we're we're quite confident we're sustainable for the life of this, which is only until the end of next year and then it it goes dark. But then it's sustainable in that we've we've built it so it's SCORM wrapped and that means that – obviously not the synchronous sort of stuff, but all the learning content, the videos, the materials, the quizzes uh, are wrapped up and given to the partner organisations. So in this case, SENA will have it all. And Mm. the idea is for sustainability, hopefully they'll pop it onto their learning site um, as something that members can access into the future. Now, in terms of long-term sustainability, eventually it will get old. You know, it's probably mm. got a shelf mm. life of five years before someone would need to come in and update it. Uh, and if any government officials are listening, we'll probably be available for further projects. And uh, <laughs> <laughs>
1: Andrew, this was, You guys have done some amazing work here, and I implore anybody who's listening to to this show to 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 go and and at least start with the fundamental to get a feel for it. Because I thought, hmm, I better go and have a quick look, and I just kept going and going and going into the intermediate level. Um, better finish that too. It's been a real pleasure having you. Uh, thanks very much. Um, we actually predict to get this show out quite quickly because of your upcoming um synchronous sessions and with the launch of it so that it, it gets out there quickly because i think this is very important
0: yeah no thanks very much for having me and uh thanks to everyone who's listening and yeah come come to the
2: side
1: for listening in just a reminder that none of the opinions or thoughts shared on the show necessarily represent those of Cena or our employers the music you're listening to is by Ben Maswick and the Millions um, they can be found on iTunes and Spotify and all the usual places if you have a suggestion or a recommendation for a guest on the show why not head over to thisemergencylife.com and leave us a message or you can email us at thisemergencylife at gmail.com. You've been listening to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life.